Welcome back, listener, to the Modern History HSC Podcast, your personal guide to understanding the modern world around us. <laughs> what, you guys are going to start your own podcast without me now? Is that what we're going to be about, huh? HSC, buddy, I don't know, Overwatch podcast. Maybe you can make a rival podcast <laughs> and then refuse to come on this one. <laughs> Okay, hello listeners, we're back at the start of a brand new year, I guess if you're doing year 12, if you finish the HSC, good work, uh, hopefully you did all the right questions, but if you are moving from year 11 into year 12, like these guys here, you will be starting with looking at power and authority in the core topic, so we get to look at Nazis and other dictators. Today, I've got Darcy and Taj. How you going, gentlemen? Hello. And we've also got Will and PJ. How you guys going? Yeah, good. Not too bad. We're going to focus on the first two syllabus dot points. This is really revision. We're going to be looking at and talking about what are the conditions that are needed for dictators to rise to power. Uh, just in general, what are the sort of conditions that you need, themes, support, and then second question will be what conditions were created after the end of the First World War and the Treaty of Versailles. Um, I'm going to try to see if these guys can, um, if they're floundering a little bit, ask each other for support, and I will jump in if we really need some prompting. So let's get started, and I'm going to start with Darcy and Taj for the first question. Give me, not all of them, but a couple of conditions that a dictator would need to find themselves in a position of power. Well, one is they just need to have general, like, control over the public opinion. They need to like be able to control the message that they're getting off their ideological message. Um, they also need like genuine connections to power so whether that be the elite class or military which we see Mussolini had the king's backing that's why he was able to rise to power so effectively uh, political and economic instability there's been blockades and a lot of nations are in debt from spending so much during the war and now it's the aftermath people are impoverished and they're more prone to promises that someone can fix this strong man can take the helm of a nation and solve all our problems for us. Absolutely. It's, would you say that there is almost same amounts or more chaos in the first year? <laughs> People are saluting the screen that's about to die. <laughs> um, after the war is ended in that first year, then there would have been maybe in the early stages of the war. Well, in Germany in particular, there was like basically a straight up civil war with revolutionaries, communists trying to overthrow the government, and then also other people trying to overthrow the government from the people they were trying to enable to fight the communists through the mess. And in Italy, it was everyone was impoverished, and like now there's no longer people serving in the army. They're looking back for their jobs, and most of the jobs are gone. So, so you got massive unemployment. And if you're not employed and like being fed, you're going to go support or do radical things, try and re-achieve that. Hmm. Yeah, excellent point. Let's throw it over to William and PJ. 
what are some other conditions? So not economic and not having a connection to, say, the military elite like the king that was brought up for the Italian example. Maybe something a little bit more intangible. So something like just being charismatic or um, just being able to have a connection to the people you're trying to talk to. So like they might have the direct legitimate power or like um, the like propaganda, the ability to talk, but they need to be able to sort of capture the minds of the people. So like that is like they sort of capitalize that during some sort of infrastructure or crisis. And they also use like mythological back, like backing sometimes. Like it was um, Mussolini who was talking, like had a lot of Roman sort of like aesthetic to his propaganda. He was made himself, he said he was like the next Caesar and he had like lions and stuff and that weird ax thingy. But yeah. I would just like to say another example of example of that is um, uh, Hitler had a way with the people because I don't know he just um, out of out of nowhere he was just uh, spy staying down notes but he just had that way with the people maybe he was um, he just knew that aspect of um, how they felt and what was needed to build that structure. Yeah, like him being a soldier and felt that stab in the back that a lot of Germans were feeling and a lot of soldiers were feeling after the new Weimar government had to uh, sign the Treaty of Versailles. Like he feels it, like in his memoirs, he's saying he's crying about it, that he feels betrayed. So when he's up there and he's spitting venom, uh, venom the people are like, yeah, this guy gets it. And he just keeps that going. So that's a really good point, Will. Are there any other conditions? So quick recap, connection to the elite. You can't overextend too much. That new power is normally connected to existing power and they sanction it. There is chaos, either economic, it's mainly economic or social. We've got a connection to mythology to inspire people. It's normally a you know, make this country or make this group better again or great again. And the last one was like charisma, that connecting with the people to make that message get across. Was there anything else, anything else that a dictator needs, say during a coup d'etat, what do you, what do you need? Well, sort of the antithesis of like a charismatic leader was like the scheming one, like Stalin, by like, he wasn't particularly charismatic himself, but he had like connections to charismatic people who he could use and conspire with to seize power. He had more like subtle forms of influence, like affecting like public communications and stuff. He wasn't at the head of like the Red Army, but he could use like the media to dislodge his rival Trotsky from power. Yeah, just setting up the conditions. Yeah, keep going, Darcy. I think the biggest thing is well, you've got to look at it holistically. You can't look at one and say, it's a yes or no if he has it. It's kind of, you've got to look at all of them and see if they kind of all balance each other out. And, let them take it. and it's all going to be done, you know, perfectly fine. Who can't be done? You know, no one needs it. It needs to be done when they're looking for chaos and looking for that order. Yeah. Was there a reason perhaps maybe for thinking that the revolution in the 1918 so a socialist revolution didn't work and then Hitler's first coup d'etat or the 
coup d'etat that happened before Hitler um, when the fascists took over Germany and um, the provisional government had to flee. Like, why didn't those two things not happen in Germany? Like, it was chaotic. Possibly not the public backing wasn't as strong as they thought it could be. Like it couldn't overtake the military in that sense. So a bit of an underestimation that the German culture was more like, we're not like the Russians, we're not like the Italians, we're going to do this, like, properly, essentially, which is what Hitler ends up having to do it, at the end of the day. He has to get elected and then does the switcheroo later. Is there anything else we want to add? Or, look, we can move on to the Treaty of Versailles. I another thing that, like, connects us to traditional, like, legitimate forms of power, like legitimizing your actions, is that at the Constitution of the Weimar Republic, there was, like, a clause which said the president could gain, like, forms of power. They're intended to be temporary, so you could, like, deal with, you know, the prior communist threat if that ever arose again. But then that gets exploited by Hitler... To just remove the democratic process entirely. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Taj. That is the Article 48 that does get exploited later. Like you said, temporary measure. There's a good little saying that we can remember from this point. There is nothing more permanent than a temporary government measure. So <laughs> a bit of irony in that. Let's move on to the Treaty of Versailles. First of all, we've got four people here and we've got perhaps four large powers, what did each of the powers want out of the Treaty of Versailles? So, PJ, what did the French want? The French wanted just pure revenge. They were like, we've had all this sort of suffering and, like, it's just completely unfair. We would just want to give the Germans back what they gave us. And, like, from one perspective, yeah, fair enough, like, that you have just copped a lot of crap you should not have. But, like, I think the Americans were sort of against it for appropriate reasons, which I won't get into. But, yeah, I just wanted revenge. Yeah, so the French wanted revenge and, rep and reparations as well. You're paying for all of this, basically, whether you can do it or not. So, Will, PJ started talking about it. The Americans, Woodrow Wilson, what was his approach or what did he want out of this total war conflict that had been going for four years um well he was more on the sideline um he wanted uh free trade for everyone well to ensure free trade um he wanted to introduce a system of collective security um disarm the world league of nations uh the league of nations um did the League of Nations end up getting supported by the Americans in the end? Right, they didn't, did they? No, I got yeah. shut down, yeah. Yeah, who shut it down? The Congress, like the public didn't want it. They were like sick of wars in Europe and went back to an isolationist sort of policy. Let's talk about the British, Taj. So this one's a little bit more balanced, isn't it? They're a bit in between the Americans and the French. They were more connected to the war than the Americans, but less devastated than the French. They see the value in having French the secured because that's their like strategic ally and they need that to balance out Germany, ensure that you no know, never tries to take over the world again, or like, you know, rise again. It wants the German navy like 
dismantled for cannot contested on like the North Sea because that would threaten British security. They want their colonies. They're going to carve that up with the French and they do want reparations so there's better security for France. They want a stable and strong France so that way it deters Germany. They weren't as connected as the Americans. They do want Germany. They don't want Germany to suffer that badly. They just don't want them to come back. Yeah, they're trying to strike a balance that doesn't push them into a corner. It's arguably what happens. It's way too harsh in hindsight. Darcy, the Italians. Um, they just wanted like more territories. They wanted their, like they were promised colonies and they were, they never got them. So they really wanted to get that. Um, but yeah, other than that, it was mainly the territories that they were really after. Yeah. And what would, what's the justification that we've talked about why they didn't end up really getting those territories or didn't really have much of a say as much as the others. They underperformed in the war. They kind of like switched sides and they joined late into the war. They didn't really achieve anything of progress in the war compared to everyone else. Yeah. So it was easy to tell them actually no, you don't you don't get anything. Like the people who spent more blood and treasure are gonna get the spoils and you're way, way down the pecking order which is going to come back later and create more conditions for them. Let's keep going a little bit more. So what are some of the things other than, so we've said uh, punishment, revenge for Germany, but what does that physically look like? What's one thing that the Germans had to agree to, forcibly agree to, PJ? Um, It was just paying all that money, like the... Was it 20 billion marks, which was around $5 billion nowadays? Uh, yes, that was by 1921. Oh. Yeah, so they had to pay more than that. So that was the first payment instalment that they had to pay. But um, yeah, somewhere in the hundreds of billions they needed to pay back. Um, Will, what's another thing? Was, was, some, was some land taken? Did anything happen along oh. those lines? So the situation with that is uh, Germany, in some point of um, the situation, um, their land was shortened and and the um, people who, like, basically um, when the land was, sh- Germany was shortened, the people who um, were in Germany lost their citizenship um, when it became smaller, um, allow- which um, created them to... Um, Either become Poland or what's the other? Czechoslovakia. Yeah, yep. and um, they could still live there, but um, they may need like if they were on a farm, they may be required to grow maybe crops or um, I don't know the new state or whatever. Yeah, it may be subject to like violence because they're a minority and like they used to. And like Germany's land and add, they're the minority, so we might just take our revenge. I mean, it's the whole Putin Russia position that we're dealing with today in the present that you have a, a Russian supportive, um, I wouldn't say majority, but a substantial um, group of people who identify more as Russians in the areas of, say, the Donbass in Ukraine that are used to being Russian. Um, since 1991, before Ukraine was created, 
So that is that similar sort of dynamic that you're setting up that the people who then get ostracized and isolated in places like Poland and Czechoslovakia, one of Hitler's promises are going to be, we're going to get these people back. Like we're going to expand into these regions. I don't care if we have to use force, we're going to get these people back into the homeland and then continue to go a bit further than that as well. Um, so we've got money. We have got loss of land. The army gets reduced to only 100,000 men. So by that stage, that is a very, very small army. They don't get to have a navy anymore. What's going on with the economy in Germany post-World War One? We've said it's bad, but let's add a little bit more flavour to it. Hyperinflation, the Weimar mark. The mark. The mark has been heavily devalued in an effort to print more money so they can pay off the reparations. But now that there's so much more money, people charge more, which just makes it redundant. And uh, there's just money's worthless. People who are saving prior, so you might have like a couple thousand dollars saved in like somewhere. That's worthless now, that's like five dollars. So that hurts people like economically. Mm. And it, well, and just like, for their planning, future planning. If your paycheck is worth less and less each week, you end up with a situation, say like people in Argentina and Venezuela experience, which is, you know, the price of the things at the supermarket, they're changing the price tags every day. It'd be so different. Like coals, we're used to them locking in prices and you know, bread always being $2. We're in a inflationary environment a hyperinflation environment you don't know what the bread's going to cost so you get paid you sprint down to the shops you buy whatever you can with your paycheck you use it all because tomorrow you might be able to buy half that much and then it feeds on itself because everybody's rushing and that's the day in day out routine till it's to the point that you get a picture like old bud up on the screen which he's taking a wheelbarrow full of money down to the shops to buy, you know, scraps. And the money's so worthless. Like, let's talk about some of those pictures a little bit more. What were they doing with the money? Someone other than Taj, because he was just talking. They were literally just shoving it into fires as fuel or like letting kids play with it, like stacks and stacks of cash, just yeah. making kites and like they were using it as wallpaper, decoration. Clothing as well, like there was a <coughs> dresses and stuff like that. They were just using it for anything other than money at that. <laughs> yeah. And just from like thinking about the sources a little bit, do we think those sources, those pictures, were in the moment or were they staged they could have been staged but um it could have been just a, a short representation of uh, one of many things they were wasting the money on or throwing the excess money to towards yeah i think when we see the picture of the woman in the money and then you know plastering it on the walls or then putting it in the fireplace or the kids making kites out of money. I think what is a more accurate representation is you wouldn't be walking down the streets in Weimar, Germany and seeing everybody doing that all the time, that this was more the Germans trying to um, represent through their media what they thought about the mark. 
that the mark is so worthless here's all this ridiculous stuff we're willing to do with it it would have just been like a TikTok challenge or something. What's the dumbest thing you could do with the mark? Because the mark is trash. That's basically what we're looking at when we have a look at those photos when you think about it. Um, so we've got the hyperinflation that is happening that is being caused. Um, the last thing we might talk about, and Darcy, I'll throw this to you because I know we were talking about it before. So when they don't meet the reparation the second reparation which is before the hyperinflation before they turn to printing all the money um what do the french do to the germans when they're like sorry i can't make the payment uh so they they crossed the border and went into the room yeah the room and that's like the industrial area in germany and basically they would you know like trying to help them i guess meet the obligations by working for them and taking it for themselves yeah. so yeah they would i think it was yeah, 60,000 French troops went into the room and basically, yeah, giving it to the French instead of, like, yeah, Germans giving it to them. They would just work for it, basically. Do you think an action like that from the French would have only, like, annoyed people in Germany more? Yeah, I think if anything, it adds to the humiliation they've already got. Like, we can't even do it ourselves. Didn't, you know? like, some of the leadership in the Weimar public, like, tell people not to resist the French so they could like pay the thing. So then the Germans were like, well, who I was shooting out to the French and the foreigners. It's not cool. Yeah, it just adds to the stab in the back. Plus, end of World War One. remember, the stab in the back's coming from, like, they were never invaded. There was never a troop that set foot on German soil. So this is the first time that you've got 60,000 soldiers from France entering with no resistance whatsoever and you're putting up passive resistance of like, no, we're not going to stand for this. We're not going to work. And then they're bringing French people in. They're, they're, they're effectively invading German land and taking it over. And the government's like, can't do anything about it. So this would be absolutely enraging all of these nationalist groups, which is going to lead to the beer hall putsch. But we haven't watched that yet. And we haven't read about that yet. So that is something for next time. We're going to sign off, so I'll get everybody to say goodbye, and then we'll see you next time on the Modern History HSC podcast. Bye. See ya. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Modern History HSC podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern History HSC podcast. And if you have the time, leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This allows us to attract more high-profile guests into the future. And finally, remember that truth are not merely facts, because facts alone can be manipulated either intentionally or unintentionally. Truth will only reveal itself when an individual undertakes an honest, thorough, and courageous investigation. We must restrain our intent to prove contemporary points and concerns and instead accept that we could be the exact people that we are studying and critiquing. This is true empathy and it is uncomfortable, but is necessary in the pursuit of truth. Thank you and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.